The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 10 of season four of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is Mark Stepro. Mark is currently on tour with the Wallflowers in support of their latest record, Exit Wounds, and he's also been, for the past 13 years, the drummer for the great producer-songwriter Butch Walker. In addition to his work with the Wallflowers and Butch Walker, Mark has also appeared on records with Train, Panic at the Disco, Jewel, Keith Urban, Gavin DeGraw, Brian Fallon of the Gaslight Anthem, and Rob Thomas of Matchbox 20, among many others. In this interview, we cover everything from the gear that he's using with the Wallflowers, how he sets up his inner mix, how he developed his internal pulse, how to properly play the song One Headlight, and much more. Super, super fun hang, and let's get to it with Mark Stepro. So tell me what what's happening now. Are you in between legs with the Wallflowers? Yes. Yeah, so what we're doing is, um, so that group generally goes out three to four times a year for about a month at a time. Um, okay. And we just did one in April and we're going to do another one in late July, uh, late July to late August. And then another one from late September to late October. Um, and it's, it's really good for me because this is kind of the first time in a long time, first time in my memory where I kind of know what's happening through the rest of the year. Like I've got kind of a essentially a schedule for the rest of the year, and if if nothing comes in beyond this, it's it's totally fine, and I can float it. Um, that's nice because usually it's like you end a tour and then you're kind of waiting around, like okay, what's is there going to be another one? If so, when? Um, but I feel like that group is pretty reliable. It really kind of shows you. It's really demonstrative of what the power of radio hits back in the day does for an artist's career because he's able to Jacob Dylan is able to basically tour four months out of the year, I guess for as long as he wants. Mm -hmm. And, um, he kind of went, I think, you know, my understanding is he went to his booking agent and said, I want to, you know, I want to tour three, four months out of the year. And the booking agent said, cool. Um, you can't play New York city four times a year. Like Mm -hmm. you, you know what I mean? Like you can't play Chicago and LA four times a year. So, what I can do is I can put you in a 900 seat theater in Champaign, Illinois and Eugene, Oregon and Smyrna, Georgia and all these places. And Jacob said, cool, sounds great. So in July, for example, no sooner do I say that we are going to play the prospect park band shell in Brooklyn. Um, but then the, the, I would say the majority of the tour is, is just kind of 900 seat theaters in tertiary markets because it's late enough in the year that we've already played New York. We've already played LA, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So what do you do in between legs? You said you don't have to work, but do you try to fill your calendar when you're not on the road? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I was playing last night at this place in Hollywood called gold diggers. Um, I'm going to play, I'm doing a recording session this weekend. Um, I just kind of fill it in, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, like I'm sure everybody's like, a lot of guys are like this where it's just like, cause it's not, it's there's it's not like a retainer, you know what I mean? It's not just my full time job, mm. um, but it is. I don't know. It's it's like if you have any creative business, if you're a web designer or if you're a lighting designer, and you have like maybe one client that occupies a larger part of your portfolio, so to speak, than other people. So that accounts for a, a decent part of it. But then yeah, the rest of it is just fills in with whatever comes in in L.A. Um, I have a seven-year-old son and I have a wife who works and who really likes her job. So it's a little tricky for me 
basically I'm not, I don't hop off of a wallflowers tour and immediately go try to find another tour. Um, I try to do what I can around town, whether that's a little bit of recording. I mean, I'm certainly not like a, I don't make my living recording drums. I don't think any, I mean, there's like five people in the world that do that. Um, but I just kind of fill in the, fill in the gaps, you know, because the other thing is I don't, I, I don't want to lose that gig. And I mean, Jacob Dylan is going to keep going and keep going kind of regardless. So it's kind of my chair to lose. So if I did, find some other tour in between a wallflowers tour and then that tour conflicts. Then I've got a whole bunch of headaches that, you know, I spent many years of my life playing that video game and it's not, mm. it's stressful and it's like very ulcer inducing when you see something pop up on the calendar that overlaps with the other thing on the calendar and you're like, Oh God, Oh God, what do I do? You know, what do you do? Do you have subs that you can rely on or how go to the management? How does that get dealt with? In this particular case, I had to do that this past fall because the reason that I'm even in this play with this group is because of a producer called Butch Walker, um, who I've worked with for 13 years. And Butch Walker is an artist who kind of evolved into this career as a producer. And he, you know, he produces all these big records or whatever. And he made a wallflowers record. He's been friends with Jacob for years and, you know, he wanted to do a tour and he tours very, very infrequently. It's like every year and a half, and it's for about three weeks at a time. And he wanted to do this fall tour, and I love him, and I have all this uh, loyalty to him. And I said, uh, he, you want to do these dates? And I said, shoot, dude, I, I actually can't because I've got Wallflowers booked. And he was like, okay, what if I move my tour so that you can do it? Okay. Uh, yeah, and I, I made that exact <laughs> expression that you just made. Uh, and I went, uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So we do that, right? I lock that in, lock that in with Wallflowers Management. And then all of a sudden, Wallflowers Management comes back with like, oh, by the way, uh, hey, guys, we're extending the tour by four weeks. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God. So, but in that case, what I had to do was I had to go to Jacob and I was like, dude, I, I told you like, First, number one, I already told Butch that I couldn't do his tour because of your thing. Like, I honored your thing. And Butch was okay with that, and he moved his thing to accommodate essentially your thing. Um, I, can't, I can't ask him to do it again because you, you guys have added dates after, you know. And I get it. Like, I'm just a drummer. Like, you guys are obviously going to do what you're going to do, and I just have to kind of fit into it or not. But I'm telling you, I can't bail on Butch because you guys added dates. And Jacob completely understood, you know, he was t totally cool about it because, you know, the thing that kind of, you know, you have that, that question is actually oddly specific in this case, because there's a lot of nuance in there insofar as I wouldn't even be in that group if it wasn't for Butch, mm -hmm. but Butch put me on that record that he made, that they made. And then Butch basically said to Jacob, when Jacob was getting a new crew together, Butch was like, you should use these guys and basically put me on it. So for me to then hit Butch back up and be like, oh, dude, actually, I know I told you I could do that tour, but sorry, Wallflowers. Uh, you know how it is. Uh, like, I didn't want to bail on him like that. And it, it ended up working out. They got a sub. And it was kind of cool. It was, um, it was somebody else's sub. It was kind of interesting. Somebody else in the group stepped up and like, because I went to management and I was like, look, I can do this however you want to do this. I can find a guy. I can call up Mike Dawson in Pittsburgh. I can do like, I can get somebody ready for you. Or 
if you guys would rather handle it on your end because you don't want to feel like I'm pushing my guy on you, you can pick somebody, whatever. And they said, actually, the keyboard player found somebody, so you literally don't have to do anything. And I was like, fantastic. Yeah, I assume I assume that band is has a bit of a Rolodex of players who've kind of come in and out of their circle, right? Huge. I mean, it's to, to me, I, I always refer to that band as like the it's like the Roots Rock, like Steely Dan, basically. Mm. You know, even if you think about it, I don't know how familiar you are with that group, but like going going back to that that big record that he made all those years ago with like one headlight and all that. If you look at those album credits, you know, it's Chamberlain on drums, it's Mike Campbell on guitar, it's Ben Mon on organ. Uh, there's all it's just a bunch of like L.A. hotshots, basically, um, which is actually, you know, I was huge into that record in college for that reason, because I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, living in L.A. and being a studio guy seems like such, such a cool thing to do. And this record is a really cool intersection for me because, A, it has all the benchmarks of like cool drumming and studio musicianship and clean playing and tightness and blah, 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 that you would see on a Steely Dan record. But I also like really, really like the music because it's very adjacent to the stuff that I grew up listening to, which would have been Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen, the band and, and so forth. So that was like a really, I just remember being a kid and just thinking like, man, if I could do that gig, that would be awesome. Mm. Um, and it is to your point, very much, you know, it's a revolving door. We made that record in 2019 and it's been the same people since then. Um, you know, I think sometimes Jacob probably likes to change it up. I think more likely, like I said to you earlier, like it's it's not really a retainer gig. So it's like if he takes a year off and then somebody in the band goes on tour with the uh, Cheryl Crow or something, and then that leads to a full-time thing and then Jacob wants to tour again and then that person's not available anymore. It's a little bit like that, but Every once in a while, somebody will make, you know, I don't pay too much mind to this, but somebody will make some kind of a snarky comment about like, oh, it's not even the original guys anymore. I'm like, I'm like, there are no original guys. It's just, it's Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. You know what I mean? Like, and some guys. And like, right now I'm one of the guys. And then at some point I won't be, whether that's my decision or his decision, you know, it's, that's just how it goes, you know? Yeah, that's just an ignorant comment because Matt played on the record. Was Mario the first touring drummer? I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. So and that then, was uh, the original guys ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, it was like the original, original, original drummer was literally like Jacob's friend from high school. And then I think maybe once Jacob, once they wanted to make a re quote unquote real record, maybe that guy wasn't ready. And it was in the 90s when it was very en vogue to be like, we got to get a session drummer, you know, or whatever. Um, you know, now my seven-year-old son could probably just play a beat and then you could just massage it in, into sounding okay. Um, but yeah, so, and uh, uh, who else did it? Uh, so Mario, who I don't know, did it. Uh, Fred Eltringham, who I know and adore, uh, did it. Uh, that drummer Jack Irons from Pearl Jam did it right. for a minute. Yeah. So it's got, it's cool. It's kind of a cool, I don't know. I don't mean to, I hope I don't sound like a, like I'm big timing, but it's like kind of a fun little lineage to be a part of and like i said i'll i'll keep doing it as long as they'll have me yeah i have a two two questions here so the first thing is you mentioned training a sub uh, mm -hmm. and that's a topic i don't think is discussed enough so if you had to sub out a week or a couple of days mm -hmm. what would you do to get someone prepared for that <clears throat> um that's a great question. First thing I would do, let's, are we going to start with the assumption that it's my job to find the, the sub? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Cause like I said, I don't know. It's, it has to do 
quick, super quick sidebar. I think it just has to do with like Jacob Dylan's dad being one of the most famous people on the planet for many, many years. And Jacob also being essentially a, a rock star for a lot of years. They're pretty in that specific group, you know, they really prioritize people that they've known for a long time. Yeah, so any any person that I bring or that anybody else brings that they've never heard of is going to be a little bit side eye, a little bit mm. like, oh, now who is this? What who what are you doing? Anyway, let's just assume that I've got the keys to like to go find a sub. Um, so what I would do, uh, there's there's a couple things. I have a couple board recordings of the set. Um, and I, you know, I like to jokingly say, like, I kind of, I know it's, it's not the easiest gig to sub as a drummer, just because I, I like, I know where all the bodies are buried in that set. Meaning I know all the spots where just through weird, no reason whatsoever over 20 years, the bridge to some song got doubled. Nobody knows why nobody knows when he doesn't even know that he's doing it. So mm. if you ask, if you asked him, he wouldn't even be able to articulate it you know i there's like two dozen of those in the set so in other words like sometimes before we go to do a tour i'll play through my little like spotify playlist of our songs but like every other song i'm like oh crap that doesn't no disregard that that it kind of mm -hmm. doesn't it like doesn't help you know what i mean because it's like i have to make a mental note oh that section's actually two bars longer for some inexplicable reason mm -hmm. so anyway anywho you know wh what i would do is i would i would get the person that i would offer to let them use my charts which you, you know how that goes it's like that might not mean a thing to somebody else they might look at my charts and say i don't know what any of this is um a board mix um i would you know it's a little it's a little bit of a drag when you do that because i'm sure you've done this too but it it, it, it kind of sucks sometimes because you kind of end up being like an unpaid consultant mm -hmm. because then the dude's like hitting you up every other day going, Hey, so like on the, on the bridge of this song, like, what do I do? Like how much? How and you're like constantly like, Oh, well it's this, it's this, it's this. And you kind of have to do it because it's your job and it's your recommendation. And it's essentially at some level, it's your reputation on the line. So it's, it's in my best interest to make sure that the sub has as much has all the information necessary you know what i mean mm -hmm. um another thing i do here's a hot tip um i would then go to jacob and or any band the band leader just say the band leader i keep saying jacob but like the band leader and i would start to without getting right up to the line of being a pain in the ass i would be like hey so that set like what songs like okay, we've got 58 songs in our catalog, but this gig that this guy's subbing for, you're going to play 17 or 18 songs. You think we might want to, you think we could maybe pick those 17 or 18 songs now so that that guy has the best fighting chance. Like I'd rather have the guy do an A plus on 17 songs than a B minus on 58 songs, just so you can randomly put together a set list 45 minutes before we go on stage. And every every time I've ever pitched that to a, to an artist, they've been like, oh, yeah, dude, great. Thank you. Totally. That's a totally good idea. Then you have to keep poking at them to actually do it. Yeah. <laughs> but but on paper, it, they understand the, the reasoning for it. You know what I yeah. mean? So that's uh, what I would do. That's my big, big idea. How do you how do you deal with tempos with with that band specifically or most bands? Do you do you go album tempo or I mean, do you start with a click? I mean, how do you get to the the performance tempo. I think about this a lot. That gig, I am so freeballing that gig. 
I'm not doing anything. It's, mm. uh, and you know, there are a couple songs that he's pretty fussy about, but not so, I guess I'd, I'd kind of just have it relatively internalized. And I think I maybe learned that set list in a kind of more gut level, street level, garage band drummer kind of a way rather than a trained pro. Like I don't have a, I, I don't have any device on stage, first of all. Uh, you know, there's no SPDSX. There's no click track. There's no metronome. There's no tracks. There's no nothing. It's pretty OG. Um, every once in a while, I think, you know, because he really, I dare say, I think he's pretty happy with the band right now. And I think he feels like it's a pretty cruisy little vehicle for him to drive around in. So he'll say, literally day of show, he'll be like, hey, there's this one song in this record that, you know, we've never learned. Say that this is like at 11 in the morning or something. And, I'll say, can everybody like make a chart of that, bring it to soundcheck and let's run it at soundcheck. Yeah. Okay. And in my chart, I'll notate the BPM Mm. um, and we'll run it at soundcheck. And if it makes it into the set, I probably will have my phone up there and I'll just quick tap 132. Okay, cool. And then off Mm. we go. What about with Butch? Is he more meticulous? Butch is such a control freak. I, I, this occurred to me. I barely count anything off. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just like either he starts it, either there's like a guitar intro or he's just like, oh, <laughs> Springsteening that shit, you know? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Like literally on the last tour after like 13 years, I found myself counting in a song and I was like, Oh my God, I'm counting in a song. You know what I mean? Like dad's letting me drive the car. Holy crap. You know what I mean? But if there was, you know, um, I I guess I would just use my little, so I played with my friends, this group called the Mastersons last night in Hollywood, and they had a lot of new songs in their set. Um, So in my little, in that little tempo app on the phone, I would just make a set list and I would just write the corresponding tempos into the song titles. And Mm -hmm. similar to like what I was saying with the Wallflowers, like I just reach over and check it before we start. I'm not like... I'm not playing to it and I'm not following along. I mean, I, I know there's that thing that like kind of monitors your tempo or whatever, like where you can, it, you can see how you're doing. But most of the people that I play with, I, I think if I start it where they want it started, it's fine. Usually. What did you do in throughout your career to develop your time, your inner pulse, your control of that? I listen to a ton of records that have really good time on them. Um, I also spent a ton of time. I mean, I'm, I'm this, this sounds the way I'm talking. It sounds like I'm like some anti-technology guy. I'm not, and I'm certainly not like an anti-metronome guy. I'm not, I don't want this to come off. Like I'm like, yeah, man, we just wing it. Like whatever, who cares? Cause I care a lot. Um, but I like to believe that it's a bit of a thoughtful practice leads to thoughtless playing thing. Like Mm. I did all, I did all the work on the front end in terms of, getting together a a time feel or whatever. And I'm not saying I'm the greatest guy at it, but I, I have spent a lot of time with it. So one thing that I did to directly answer your question is just, you know, listen to a ton of Steely Dan records and, you know, records where even like in the nineties, like the roots records, like stuff that's quantized, you know, just playing along. Um, There's eighties records that are quantized Huey Lewis and the news for whatever reason, like that stuff is pretty metronomic. Um, but then I also have like a whole slate of metronomic practice techniques that I'll use. Um, Mm. and all it amounts to is like, mostly what I'll do is, um, sorry, I'm gonna take a drink of coffee. You know, to me, 
the idea of playing along to a quarter note click track that's just hammering the downbeat and the quarter note all the way. I mean, I guess it's good if you can follow along to that, but to me in a way that's sort of like bumper bowling, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. like you kind of can't mess it up because it's just telling you where the quarter note is. All you have to do is hit along. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like, well, all right, so what can we do? All right, let's just, let's just adjust in our ear, in our mind's ear where that click is hitting. Okay. So the thing that I'll do is, uh, and I'm, this isn't like groundbreaking. I'm sure everybody does this, but like I'll adjust in my mind. So if the, say the click is really slow, maybe somewhere in, I don't know, like 60, like. So what I'll do is I'll mute the first three quarter notes. So, uh, or, or the last three, whatever you want to call it. So two, three, four, two, three, four. Now that's hard enough. But then what I'll do is I'll readjust it in my mind so that that click addresses the uh of four. Oh. So it's so it's like one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a one e. So in other words, you have 15 16th notes to be a grown up mm-hmm. and you know what I mean and like monitor yourself and it'll tell you on that 16th 16th note how you did. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's next level. Because you, you either land it or you don't. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. And you just start out just like anything, just playing like a really, really basic, just try to play time to that, which is a significant investment of your time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, slowly, slowly you can start improvising and trying to f- flow, so to speak, with just that, you know. So I do that. I did that a lot. I still do it. Um, and, and I think, you know, doing that enough combined with a lot of active listening makes it so that I can, you know, I'm not perfect, but I can have a decent, it occurs to me, like I have a decent recall for tempos. Like I don't, Mm. I don't have a very good recall for form. Like I have, I really have to work hard and I have to play a song a lot of times to memorize it. Um, but I can, I can usually get the tempo dialed up pretty easily. Do you ever have conversations with anyone after the gig? Like, how did everything feel? Or your someone come to you say, "Man, that maybe it was a little bit slow tonight," or something? Do you have that at this point? No, not in that group. Um, not in Butch's group. Once in a blue moon, it'll come up, and usually it'll come up from somebody else in the band. I mean, Jacob, the singer in the Wallflowers, Jacob. I I don't know. I just think we've got it pretty well down. If somebody thought that, I would absolutely entertain it, and I would want to track it down and see what's going on. Um, but it doesn't come up a ton. Um, it's really, really interesting to me. I, I talk about this, my friend Adam Levy and I have talked about this for years. He's a great guitar player living in New York. And it's interesting. If you take kind of like Western diatonic pop music that we all play, um, if you think about the fundamental elements of, the, of, of, of say, you know, a, a Tom Petty song or whatever. So, the harmony, the chord changes, the melody, the lyrics, and the form, those are all pretty pretty fixed, right? You're not going to really mess around and just play an extra chorus of free fall and just cause, you know what I mean? But I wonder, and I'm not saying this is the definitive answer, but I, I just wonder, does it matter if it's 110 or 112? Like, say, 
say we're in New York and we're really kind of on edge because it's like a big show and all guest list is packed and everybody's there and, you know, it might be a little faster. Um, and then the next night we're down in Philly and everyone's hungover and we had cheesesteaks for lunch and maybe it's a little slower and maybe that's okay too. I mean, as long as, as long as everybody is interacting with the pulse, as long as everybody's on the same page, I don't really see why it matters to like the granular degree of like X BPM, mm. you know, but, but that's just me. And I mean, look, if I worked for somebody who was a stickler about it, I would, I would, I would work up to them. Um, I would level up to what they wanted to do. But my, just my personal philosophy is, are we all feeling good? Is everybody cool? Like if everybody's cool, like who cares what the piece of paper says about the tempo, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. How do you go about learning back catalog music? Do you try to honor the original parts to the minutia, or do you get an essence of it? What's your approach? A lot of times, this sounds like uh, this sounds like brown nosery, but I, I'm not a great guitar player, but like I'll just learn the song on guitar oh. and and sing it. Because to me, and, and this is just some like, I was in music school for one year, but you know, there's a couple of super fundamental axioms that you pick up in music school that's like, if you can sing the tune, you know the tune. You know what I mean? Like if you can play it on a melodic harmonic instrument and sing it, you definitely know the song. Mm -hmm. um, I my general vibe, like once I get to the sit down to the drums, so I'll chart it at my kitchen table with headphones in and nowhere near a drum set. Um, because that's another, that's another lesson I learned. I remember like I was with a, a teacher when I was a kid and I wanted him to show me how to play something. And we put the song on and like almost instantly I started playing along to it in incorrectly. This mm -hmm. thing that I was paying money, asking this guy to show me how to do. And, and he's just kind of like, okay, yep, yep, yep. Just, can you hang on just one second? Let's just, <laughs> let's just listen to it. And I'm like, okay, yeah. We start hit push play again. And within like seven seconds, I'm like, do, 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 like trying to do it. And he's like, yo, you need to listen to this song, dude. Like you're not, you haven't even listened to it yet. You have a rough idea of how it goes and you're just already jumping in. So it's helpful to me to like, just chart the song, just using my ears and my hand with a pen and before I even sit down at the instrument. Um, and then as to how granular, I'm not really copying specific fills or anything like that. Unless again, unless the artist is like, Hey, I song X, Y, and Z, like I, I really need it to be 100% faithful to the original recording. But even that it's like, I don't know. So the, the, the one fun example of that in the wallflowers is that song one headlight, right? When, and I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but that song sort of famously doesn't have a crash symbol on it. Or whatever. One of my questions. Do you, play Oh yeah, crashes? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I don't. And I, it's, I don't, and I love it. It's, 
but but that's an example of like I, to me I would I would 100% honor the no crash symbol on on that song and it it you know it kind of heightens up the tension the whole time because the guy's not hit it does two things number one when that big G chord strum comes in on the chorus it's huge because it there's no symbols are a drag and I kind of see why they're out of vogue in popular music like it meaning pop pop music because it does occupy the majority of the sonic spectrum if you just like detonate a crash symbol or whatever so it's kind of cool and then also you know mark juliana talks about this but it's like the dude's not hitting the crash symbol and all of a sudden like after three minutes even people who aren't musicians can feel that tension that the guy hasn't because the crash symbol really is an articulation of like a release in some way you know tensions in the beat and the drum fill is even more tension attention tension crash and that's almost like a big exhale or whatever and if you don't do that like you know people get nervous like in a good way you know what i mean people are like oh okay once when's when's the and then you hit it at the end and it's like you know it's 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 a lot more impactful i guess that song i i wanted to pick your brain about this because i play it a lot and Uh i i resist the urge to play crashes but then some nights it's like you know what they just need a crash and then yeah. also the hi-hat pattern do you play eights or do you fill in the 16th to cover the shaker part i do 16th okay so what do i do i do 16th note ghosty stuff on my left hand on the snare okay um and i don't sorry thinking i don't do four on the floor um, I want to come back to your point about you, you, you playing that song with a, another group. But so I hit up Chamberlain when I started doing that gig and I don't, I don't know, Matt, I met him a couple of times, but we're not, I don't know him. Know him. Um, but I said, Hey, I'm playing in this band. Do you remember? Cause like, I can't tell if you listen to the recording, I can't tell if it's four on the floor or if it's kick on one and three, it's a little hard to, to say. And he told me what, what's going on there is there's like a Ringo style floor tom that's very muted with mallets going like doing doing like the get back beat kind of as an overdub and so when we play live our the bass on that recording is sort of like um it's sort of like Sly and the Family Stone if you want me to stay that kind of like short long but our bass player plays why not Jansfeld who's one of my best friends he's an incredible musician he's subbing with Matchbox 20 right now he plays with a pick and does kind of junk and then I just play one and three on the snare two and or sorry one and three on the kick two and four on the snare and ghost in those 16th notes and sometimes I do those little fills and sometimes I don't and I just kind of wing I just kind of wing that part and I kind of I do kind of take an opportunity in that song with those fills I kind of try to find where the line is and I try to get as close to it as possible of like kind of doing my own thing mm-hmm. on, on those. But I wanted to say really quickly, you talking about playing that song. Like I've seen bands in Nashville, like on, in, on lower Broadway play that song and stuff. And you know, everybody talks about, yeah, there's no crash symbol, but I do it live, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, you should do it live. Like this is back to my earlier concept about, about tempo. It's like, okay, they made that record. It was 19, 19- 92 or 93 it was in Burbank or something 
it was these guys. It was this month out of the year. They had had pizza for lunch. There were, there were all these factors, right? And like none of those, like they're in a recording studio with very expensive microphones, with very expensive preamps, and you're in a bar. And it's a totally different, it's a completely different environment. So like, you know what I mean? It's like it's the same thing like when guys try to get all with the with the fat gushy snare drum like i love that sound you love that sound everybody loves that sound everybody loves the eagles it doesn't sound good in a bar sometimes because mm-hmm. you have to you, when you splat that snare it just doesn't sound as good as if you have a detuned gushy snare drum and you barely hit it not with a rim shot and you crank the preamp then it sounds like cool you know what i mean but mm-hmm. all, all that to say i just I, i'm not one to believe that you have to be super evangelical about interpreting something directly from a record. Unless somebody says, Hey, I really need you to do that. And then I'll do it. One man's opinion. What do All I right. Know? Great. Great insight. Yeah. I didn't realize there was an overdub floor Tom. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And that's kind of why you listen to it. And you're like, this feels cool and it's awesome, but I can't tell exactly who's doing what here. Yeah. And probably yeah. every bass player covers that with their, their fingers. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. Well, that was pretty nerdy. What is your yeah, I love it. <laughs> what is your what is your live rig for the Wallflowers? Uh oh gearwise, um it's a Ludwig um what is that thing called? It's uh they don't make them anymore, weirdly. Uh club date. Mm. Um the the thin ply, I think it's I don't know much about drums, but like gear wise, but like I think it's a three ply. It's they're really skinny. Um they don't weigh very much, they're very light. Um, three ply maple. Um, and it's the one that I'm using right now is that Duco finish with the black gold black. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I have that one and I have that one with that group. Um, and that's in 22, 13, 16, but I also have a club date in blue, gray, blue Duco that's in 20, 12, 14. And I'll use that one for stuff around LA. I play with a guy called Brett Denon, whose music is a little bit more subdued and a little less big drums. Um, so I'll use that. Um, although I do have, I just took out my, I have like a 75, um, olive badge gold sparkle that, uh, sounds incredible. It's like a classic maple from the seventies. Um, and I think I'm going to take that one on the next run and see what that one does. Because I do, I think big, I think old drums, it's hard to get them to sound really good in big outdoor amphitheaters you know i feel like as incredible as those old drums are i feel like they have like a ceiling to how much they project but in a 900 seat theater i think it's absolutely perfect so i think i'm going to do that next time around what's the snare usually a black beauty i'm such a what i'm a basic (laughs) b-i-t-c-h um uh black beauty acrylite superphonic um and i have a couple Acrylite. I have an old Acrylite and a new Acrylite. Um, and I, you know, I, same as you, it's like I've done a lot of recording and it's very rare that if I bring those three drums to a session that we're not going to have what we need. You know what I mean? Unless somebody wants something really, really specific and treated in a way, you know. Um, but the Black Beauty is the main one and then I've got the Acrylite down there just in case. Are they all tuned similar or are they slightly different? Yeah, no, they're tuned very medium. They're tuned very middle of the road because I'm, I'm trying to, I'm going for utility, you mm-hmm. know? Um, I want to, I want to kind of synthesize. I want just the most basic drum sound that will kind of suit 
a variety of songs, a variety of styles, tempos, and that will fit into most rooms. Once in a blue moon, I'll have the Black Beauty up and be like, why doesn't this sound good? And then I'll put up the Acrolyte and then that sounds good. Because mm-hmm. obviously, as, as you know from recording, it's like the room really dictates a lot and kind of tells you a lot, you know? Um, so if you listen to the room, I, I just, I start with the Black Beauty and if there's a huge problem, I'll probably try to tune it into submission. And if that's still not working, I'll just go, what, okay, what, I don't know, let's throw up the Acrolyte, let's see what that does. And then it's like, oh, all right, well, that's all that problem. Then it's not the Black Beauty's fault. It didn't do it didn't do anything that it didn't do yesterday. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? You know how that is. Just that weird voodoo of like, why does this drum sound bad today? Like what? Nothing changed, you know, although the room changing can obviously. But I've had that happen in the studio. You know, have you ever come back the next day and you're like, yeah. where's my drum that sounded awesome yesterday? <laughs> it's like air pressure, humidity, all that stuff. Plays or you're way. just crazy. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's probably me. Most of the time I'm like, you know. Uh, are you like particular about dampening for live? We're gonna, we'll talk about studio in a minute, but for live. Uh, live, I use the um, gosh, it's this guy out here in California. Uh, I think he plays with Jack Johnson. I think his name's Adam Topol. The root mm-hmm. TQs. I do the uh, ring, the the not the full ones, but do you know what I'm talking about? The yeah, ones yeah. that are um, like a cloth dampening ring, right? It's a cloth dampening ring. It doesn't cover the entire diameter of the drum, although he does make those as well. But I find those those are too much. Those are like those are like super dead. Um, in a way that definitely wouldn't work live. I would use it. I've used those in the studio periodically if somebody wants to go full, full, full Ringo. Um, but I find that the the root CQs with the just the ring on the 13 and 16 totally does the job of four or five moon gels, but they're not gross and sticky and fall off the drum like moon gels. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have this thing. Somebody gave this to me. I think it's maybe that Jose guy in Portland. Oh, I think I saw one on your kit, uh, that snare weight thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have one of those on the, on the black beauty and man, that just makes all the difference. Is that with the leather wings or just the weight? It's the leather wings. There's, mm-hmm. I think maybe you have the one with the actual weight. I don't yeah. have the one that has that little thing that sort of like looks like a Zippo lighter kind of yeah, on top brass, of it. Yeah. I, I don't have that one. If somebody just gave me the one with the leather wings and I was like, it really changed the sound of the drum and it just made everything easier. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just gets, it gets those overtones kind of under control really, really quickly. Um, now also just FYI, quick, quick side rest, rest stop break here. I feel like when you're in the studio, as far as achieving those super dead drum sounds, you ought to be able to do that with tuning. You know what I mean? Like I kind of, it can be a little bit of a cheat code when guys start throwing those on there. Mm. It saves a lot of time. So that's, I get that. You know what I mean? But I wouldn't want somebody to just be like, oh, this is how you get the gushy snare drum. You just put the thing on it. You know, cause it's like, yeah, that's one way to do it, but you could also learn how to tune the drum and like, make it do that. So what I'll do usually like when I go to a session, like I'll bring those three drums that I told you about. And usually the, the black beauty, because I play it live is usually just tune medium, but then I'll just show up with one that's already in Eagles gush town, because Mm -hmm. I know at some point somebody's going to want to do that. And then that way I can just be like, here, let's just put this up and off we go. That's another black beauty or one of the other drums. It's the acrolyte. I have the acrolyte way, way down. Yep. So which super is it? The six and a half or the five? Five. Okay. So your yep. three drums are a Acrolyte five by fourteen Supra and a six and a half by fourteen Black Beauty. It's like you've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That's a trifecta, though. I mean, that's I, it's 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 very classic. It's very basic. But I mean, I don't know that 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 embodies a lot of my just kind of overall aesthetic and just the way that I kind of live my. I, I'm a pretty unflashy, pretty basic. You know, Ray Bans, Peacoat, Levi's jeans. Like those are <laughs> those are things that are never gonna be more or less cool than they right. currently are. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're not hip, but they're also not lame. And you can see pictures of people wearing them in the sixties or the nineties or yesterday, and it's just like, Oh yeah, okay, cool. Now what about drum heads? Are you particular about that? Uh coded emperors on the toms, ambassador on the snare, so in keeping with our very basic <laughs> Formula, yeah. I mean, all those, all the gear that I play is all stuff that I. It's all the first gear that I saw when I was a kid. You know, like the school music program had, as as far as I recall, Ludwig drums with Remo heads and Zildjian cymbals, and I was always just like, all right, this is. You know, I never really tried to stray too far from that. I always just associate that with this kind of fundamental, primary way that I hear how drums sound. What is your cymbal setup with the Wallflowers? It changes all the time. I have a set of the the, the Zildjian makes. Uh, well, you do know about gear, so stop. I was going to say stop me if this starts to sound Greek to you, but I know that it won't. Um, so Zildjian makes those things called fat hats. I don't know if you know uh, those. Yeah. Everybody's so raving about those. They're rad. I have the prototype version. I don't know. You know those? Have you seen those prototype ones? Like when Stanton Moore that that weird crash that he has with the mm -hmm. rivets in it. Um, I have one of those too, and it's and it's got like this kind of prototype. Um, so I have those those fat hats in fifteen, and then like a K Dark nineteen. And a 22 Avidus ride, uh, the new Avidus where you could, where it says Avidus in the cursive or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I've been using that Stanton more uh, weirdo bizarro crash as a right side crash, um, and it almost sounds like a like a china or something in a way. It's really abrasive, and that's really good on like a final chorus or something like an outro where you're really, really bashing and it just kind of kicks, kicks into fourth gear. Cause it's just like this extra level of kind of obnoxiousness for the last eight or 16 bars of the tune. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that Avidus ride is like the, I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to find as you have too, you know, just the right balance of like wash and, and articulation and in a rock band, I'm usually not in that group, not going full on Keith Moon, like washy crash ride vibe. You know what I'm saying? Usually it's a little bit more just ride, ride, I guess, medium playing, medium ride playing. That's a technical mm. term. Um, <laughs> but the Obidus kind of uh, kind of ticks a lot of boxes that way. I, I adore that company. And it's, you know, I should take a minute to talk about this because like, I'm, I'm not a very prodigious social media user and I'm not a very loud mouth ear endorser guy, but I've had relationships with all three of those companies for years and years and years. And in particular, there's a woman at Zildjian named Kirsten Matt, who maybe, you know, maybe you don't, but she's kind of the West coast version of what Sarah Hagen used to be. Um, and she has been so good to me for so many years and I thank her all the time. I say, I know I don't have a hundred thousand TikTok followers. I'm really sorry, but I do work a lot. If that makes you feel any better. And I think she, I've just basically been kind of grandfathered in under literally cause I'm old. Like it, <laughs> into, <grandfather> yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But she, my point, I just, I do want to take just a minute to, to say that I, I think she's just a wonderful person and you know, you know, this is more probably than anybody. It's just like everybody makes great gear. 
right? Like there's no subpar. I mean, maybe there are some subpar symbol, com- but the ones that we know and think of in our minds, the major symbol companies, you can, I can sit down at Meinl or any symbol company and find incredible instruments, you know, mm. um, it's just the, the relationship that I've had with her for years and the fact that I can take stuff in and take stuff out and she lets me borrow stuff and blah, blah, blah. And she is just really, really supportive for whatever reason. And I'm, I'm super, super grateful for it. And I just wanted to say that. Beautiful. Yeah. Those avidus, I loved them. And I have the same issue with ride symbols. Um, it's like, I want it to be washy, but then it, there's never enough articulation. Like that's still yeah. the, there's still a unicorn out there for me. I haven't found. Yeah. It it's I, I'm glad you're on the hunt for that same, <laughs> same unicorn, you know, cause sometimes those K Constantinople's or the K, uh, will do that, you know? Um, but then if you, if oddly enough, because they're, you know, they're jazzy symbols and they're really dark and they're really washy, but, and they sound really good when you wash out on them, but they're not very articulate, I guess, if you're trying to play rock ride Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, also they, you can beat them up pretty easily. You know, Mm -hmm. I had a K-Con that I, I just crash rided on it for so many years and I've got pretty decent technique. So I don't, I don't really break symbols, but what I realized that I did was by essentially gently crash riding on this thing for years, it, it just got dead. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Have you, have, yeah. It just, it stopped vibrating as much. It just, it would not open up anymore. It sounded like a, one of those K dark customs, you know what I mean? Oh, wow. Like, why does this not sound like a symbol anymore? Oh, right. Cause you've been smashing it for 15 years. <laughs> I wonder if it had little tiny cracks you could see or something. Maybe. Yeah, that's possible. <laughs> so um, a couple things. Let's talk about, well, we're in the live world. So quickly, is there a major difference between playing live with Butch Walker versus playing live with the Wallflowers as far as intensity or what your role is or what's expected or how much you can get away with? Huge difference. With Butch, you know, I talked earlier about the line, like trying to find the line of like what will make the singer turn around and go, what on earth are you doing? Um, With Butch, I haven't really found it yet. So Mm. that group is so fun and very, very expressive and we're essentially just screwing around up there and we're kind of like trying to make ourselves laugh. And Butch is, I, you should check him out. I'm, I don't know how aware you are of his music, but he is just a, a complete virtuoso musician and performer. So when he plays, it is like balls to the wall. He is jumping off stuff and, you know, people don't want him to open for them because he is, he's a maniac. And so we're up there trying to match that energy and we're going bananas like the whole time. Um, Jacob Dylan, I jokingly refer to as the dad who never hugs you. Like he's just like, he's got, he's got just like kind of a resting heart rate of like Ted Bundy. Like he, he, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like he's just, it, and it's funny. It's interesting because those guys are such good friends, but they are, could not be less alike as musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, Jacob's got not to be all sanctimonious about it, but it's like Jacob's got some of these songs that are like radio hits and I want to honor them. And we, he, we want to present them semi faithfully, you know, not, we're not. And, and also like those, his songs are less, they're, they're just not really a vehicle for a, a wank fest. Um, the way that's on, on Butch's stuff, like we all really, really open up and kind of go, go bonkers. I thought about this a lot and the answer, one, one way to really directly answer your question is 
I love both gigs so much. They're both right in my wheelhouse. They're both artists whose music I would drive around and listen to, drive around in my car as a fan. I would pay the cover to watch them both play. With Butch, I'm smiling the whole night. And with Jacob, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm enjoying myself equally on both gigs. It's just there's something a little bit more classy and buttoned up about Jacob's thing, and there's something a little more unhinged and reckless and crazy about Butch's thing. And they're just different gears, basically. Mm. That's awesome, because they kind of live in the same genre, so to speak. It's not that different. Yeah, it's not that different. But when Butch goes on stage, it is just like it is like more Springsteen than Springsteen. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, you have to watch some, I'll send you a live clip or something, but it's, and I got to match that level. And like I said, I, I think he's just such a fan of music and he's such a fan of drums and drumming. And he himself is actually a really good drummer. I, I'm just trying to make him laugh up there. I'm constantly trying to play fills that reference conversations we had earlier, mm. you know, um, uh, what's that, that Janie's crying, you know, I'll try to do that a bunch of times, whatever, just stupid, smart ass, classic rock dad jokes. That's basically, that's what's going on on stage. Like it's multidimensional, right? Because on one hand there's Butch Walker performing a set of his music to an audience. And on the other hand, there's this subtweet going on. That's all us talking to each other, doing smart ass licks and riffs to try to make everybody laugh. Yeah. Love it. You kind of answered this earlier when you talked about learning songs on guitar and singing it, but uh, what makes a good drummer for a singer-songwriter? Um, somebody who's listened to a lot of music, um, somebody who has a really wide... It's not even about having a wide vocabulary um, in terms of dexterity, but if the singer says man, can you do a thing that's sort of like what Keltner does on Memphis in the Meantime by John Hyatt, which is a ride cymbal pattern that's basically tequila by the champs. And just being able to know those references, I think, mm. um, is really, really helpful. Um, when the singer asks, you know, because the singer is trying to tell you who they are, right, by the references that they use. And they're trying to tell you who they want to, how they want to be perceived. And I think that they want to, in a lot of cases, surround themselves with people who are, you know, this isn't like a shocking thing, but are just relatively simpatico to them. So if Jacob says, man, can you do a beat that's sort of like Train in Vain by The Clash? I know The Clash is one of his favorite groups. And I go, I don't know. I don't really, I don't really listen to Clash. Like, and then I pull Train in Vain up on Spotify because I've never listened to The Clash. Mm. And yes, I have the facility to play do-debts, like, but the fact that I don't know it is a little bit of a tell, you know what I mean? Um, so I think just, and there's, there's no, this, that's an interesting one because there's no shortcut. There's no cheat code for that. You just have to have listened to a bunch of music. Um, and also, you know, it's a cliche, but you just have to have really good ears and be really sensitive. I mean, think about what Jay Belarose does. Like Jay Belarose doesn't, and I would say this to him, he doesn't do anything on the instrument that you're like, oh my God, I can't physically understand how he played that pattern. Like that's not, that's not his genius. His genius is in the sounds that he selects and the way that he's able to match the intensity level and just kind of, he just creates this nice little bubble that the song can kind of float around on. And that's, that's what I think makes a good accompanist, whether it's drums or anything really. How do you build parts? Cause I think from the outside, if from, from the surface, 
singer-songwriter drumming can seem very simple and kind of repetitive, but like where's the nuance? Where do you get to insert yourself into the part writing and not have it be overwritten? You know what I mean? So I keep t- I keep talking about the line, um, this mythical line. A song will tell you th- this. Is, I'm not trying to be all hippy dippy, but like a song will tell you what I would call let's call it like the minimum effective beat, right? Um, just meaning like we will rock you or something like that or whatever. Um, you kind of know if a song is do da do do da, and you can pick that out in any number of ways by listening to the vocal observing and listening to the strumming pattern of the acoustic guitar and so forth. But so my thing is like, all right, I'm going to totally go with you on the the basic 30,000 foot architecture of the beat. And then I want to, then I want to start poking around and finding some little subtle thing that gets close to the line. Not, I'm not talking about overplaying, but I'm just talking about inserting a weird ghost note or an odd kick drum placement or the odd utilization of a tom in a really syncopated part of the beat where it's still, if you had the radio on medium volume and we're just walking around your house, living your life, you would still hear boom, bop, boom, boom, bop. But if you listen really closely and you were really paying attention, speaking of your Easter eggs, you would go, huh? Oh, oh, weird. Okay. Oh, that's cool. You know what I mean? So I'm always trying to always trying to find just a little teeny tiny thing. And that was that that same teacher that I was telling you about, a guy named Jim Ed Cobbs in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from, taught me that. It was just like you just want to honor the song and, and just try to poke out just enough that somebody, if they were really paying attention, they they could see that you're there, but it's not like this grand announcement, basically. Do you play differently in the studio? I don't think so. I, I mean I probably don't hit as hard. I, mm. I play less crash cymbals. I mean, I definitely play the crash cymbals less hard in the studio. You know, that's one of those things that like, that should be the first thing they tell you when you start playing the drums. You know what I mean? Like play the cymbals like 30% less loud than you play the drums. Mm. It's such a simple concept, but nobody, if you're a kid, you wouldn't think to do that. It wouldn't really occur to you to do that. You know, remember when, remember when you were like a kid starting to play the drums and some older guy was like, hey, you should probably, when you hit the crash cymbal, you should probably hit the bass drum too. Yeah. You, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? You're like, oh, that's how it works. <laughs> right. Oh, you know what I mean? Because you're a kid and you're going, and there's no kick and you're like, what the hell? And then you hit that kick drum and you're like, oh, cool. All right. That's how that goes. <laughs> if you, somebody should have told me that when I was like 12, you know, like, yo, lay off on the cymbals just a little bit, you know? Uh, this is maybe way too too inside, but what about in ear mix live and in, in the studio? Are you you like to like for me? Case in point, sure. if the in ears get too loud or too busy, mm-hmm. it's kind of like chaos, and I don't know what's happening. So I'm trying to work to bring the volume down and maybe pull things out a little bit more. Yeah. Do you have any particular in ear mix or or monitoring mix in general? Uh, well, let's start with. Um, I, can, I was going to say, let's start with the studio, but I guess this applies across the board. First of all, I don't want to hear too much drums because like you said, you don't want to, there's only a finite amount of sonic real estate to deal with. Right. And I already know what I sound like. I already know how it feels when I play the drums. I don't need that information reinforced. I'm sitting at the drum set. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I need just a little bit because I have uh, in-ears on with, what do you call it? You know, it's a seal, right? So there's definitely noise reduction going on. So I have a, a whisper of drums. And then I guess I, I yeah, okay, so I should separate this out. Um, live, I'll probably have the vocal higher than anything else. The thinking being, if everything goes to shit, worst case scenario, me and the singer are just playing a duet together. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. If the bass player's amp takes a dump and the keys or the guitars are electric guitars way out of tune, blah, blah, blah. And everything around us is melting down. It's me and the singer. And we're going to, we're going to get everybody tucked in mm-hmm. and get everybody home on home in time for bed. Um, so in the studio, I think of it similarly. I don't, I don't need to hear too many drums. Um, in the studio, it's a little bit more clinical and a little bit less fun. Um, but you're doing a different job, right? We're not, you know, we're, we're trying to lay a foundation for this music. So in the studio, I have the click probably louder than just about anything. Mm -hmm. Um, because to me, the main, obviously the main goal is like, we want to get these drums locked on this click. Everything else is, we'll deal with all that stuff later. But like if the drums and the click are together, we're good. So frequently, when we're doing, I'll, I'll get back to the monitor thing in a second. But like when we when we listen to a playback, I'll I'll ask. I'll just be like, "Sorry, this is gonna bug everybody." But for like four minutes, can I just listen to drums and click? Mm. And just it just sounds like a guy playing a beat for four minutes, basically. But it just if I know that the drums and the click are locked, then anything these guys do when I leave, I'm not worried about it. Um, and then beyond that, going back to the monitor thing in the studio, you're trying to pick your allies, right? You got that little box you got your, you know, so you can, you have infinite range of like, okay, who's playing good today? Who's, whose part really informs how I play? Um, is there an acoustic guitar? Is there, is there some, uh, element that's super rhythmic happening? Well, I'll turn that up. Is that person killing it? Are they playing really good? They get to come up in my ears because they're going to help me. Are you kind of weird and out of time and kind of wonky? Okay. You're fired. You're Mm. off. Like, and I don't have to tell anybody that, obviously, I don't say anything, but it's just the people who are helping me get louder and the people who are hurting me get quieter because you know how that is. Like, have you ever played, I'm sure you've done this, where you like play along to a demo that wasn't done to a click? Oh, yeah. And you're like trying to chase it down, you know, or or you're trying to play to a click, but there's also a guy whose time sucks and you're just like, it feels like you're like trying to walk across a balance beam, but somebody's like throwing tennis balls at your nuts. You know what I mean? You're like, dude, like help, let help me help you. Like you're making this hard, like stop, you know? So then, I, then I just turn those people off, you know, and just stick with the click. Why is it that the drums always sound wrong in that case? I know. Isn't that true? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, but I mean, that's, that's a whole other topic, which is like studio and live, like sort of politicking slash psychology is like when it does sound wrong and you're right, it does. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a literal answer for that, which is, I believe that like drums are the most immediate transient that go directly into your ear, which is why the two most important things on a track, in my opinion, are the vocal and the snare drum. Mm -hmm. Like that's the thing that you hear. You can't not hear that. Keys and guitars get a little bit washy and legato. And I can't really tell what everybody's doing. What, what are you doing? What are you playing? Blah, blah, blah. But the drums are like immediate and you can't not hear that. So back to, you know, wow, wow. It sounds, yeah. Why does it sound off? I don't know. And I'll go, gosh, can we just, can we just check the drums and the click real quick? 
Let, okay, mute everything else. Let's just check the drums and the click. Yeah, what do you know? Seems like the drums and the click are pretty good. Um, <laughs> boy, I, yeah, must I don't know. I don't know what's going on. So yeah, you guys figure that out. But anyway, and I'll I'll take ownership if I'm off with the click. I'll totally own it. You know, like I'm yeah, not perfect, yeah. but a lot of times it's that. But it's tricky because because you know when you're a drummer, it's like you're kind of it's interesting because you're 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 piloting the plane. But you're also in the back serving drinks to like mm. make sure everybody you're driving, but you're also like making sure everybody else is cool. And it's and so you want to accommodate. So when the click, the click is the click is the click. That's not changing. But then if a guitar player is like moving around, you're torn because you're like, well, dude, I want to look if we were playing at a bar, I would try to go with you. But I kind of have this thing jamming into my ear and it kind of has like a binary right and wrong answer attached to it. So like I, I, you're on your own. You know? Yeah. So is live, are you navigating a bit more? Are you letting yourself kind of push and pull to make sure everyone is cozy or how do you, what's your role there? So it's different with different people on stage. Mm -hmm. um, with Why Not, the bass player is incredible. We have a little bit of a, a shorthand where like I can tell if he's, sometimes if he's starting to rub up against me, it's because he thinks it should be a little faster and he's trying to move us along. Um, there are other people on stage who, oh, like Jacob would tell you this, like, he'll say like, it sounds like I'm slowing down. Don't listen to me. Mm. Like, I'm not telling you, I want it to be slower. I'm just accidentally being slower. So like, I need you to disregard the information that I'm giving you and meaning with the slowing down acoustic guitar. And I want you to just plow ahead. And you know, that's, uh, that's kind of a, Thing with bass players too sometimes bass players don't like it if you go back with them because the kind of bar band keep everybody happy instinct is to just um what's the word i want to look for uh, uh, to kind of moderate and just find mm -hmm. everybody's tempo but really really evolved bass players like this guy chris morrissey who i played with for many years with ben queller um he was really insistent about that he was like i'm behind you on purpose and it's just a little itsy bit behind you. And I'm doing that to create an effect. And if you go back with me, then all of a sudden we're just slower, mm. which is why, which is why kind of pet peeve of mine when people talk about like the drums, like laying back and we're not on a click. I'm like, I don't know, maybe Vinnie Caliuta can do that. And maybe you can play the snare just a little bit back, but like, but to me, and, and this, I think Mark Juliana agrees with me on this. If you think about it like perspective in art, right? Or even a grid, a Pro Tools grid, whatever. The drums are the grid. The drums are the beat. Mm. How's that for profound? The drums are the, <laughs> the files are in the computer. The, 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 the drums are the, the beat, right? And then like somebody else can quote unquote lay back. Somebody else can quote unquote push, but I can't, I don't think, cause then it just sounds like we're slower or faster or mm. uncomfortable. And that's the stuff that bugs people that they don't even, that's, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not like freaking Carlos Vega or whatever, but like, I do know enough about groove to know that that's the stuff that makes people nervous because to me, groove is just, it's just repetition. And repetition engenders trust. And when you trust that the beat is going to hit at the same spot every time, that's when your head starts moving. So, like, that's why, to me, the drums just have to be that metronome 
and we can you can hang off the back of me all you want, but I'm just going to be I'm going to be the guy, and you can be the a little bit late guy. Man, what a pro tip! Actually, have the conversations. The fact that Jacob told you that because for me, I would be like, wherever he goes, I'm going. Well, no, and that would be that would be my first instinct too, of course. <laughs> you know, because he's saying and then I was he's like, out front. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I was like, at some point, I started doing that. To, like you, same as you, I'm just trying to be an A student. And then it occurred to me, like, my God, if I go with him too far, we're just the song is just going to stop. <laughs> like it's going to get so slow, you know what I mean? So yeah, and that's just one of those things where he's like, man, I'm thinking about 50 things up up there. I'm singing the song and I'm thinking about the next song and I'm looking at that guy in the audience and seeing if he's having a bad night and blah, blah, blah. And sorry, my acoustic guitar might get a little weird. Can you just kind of rein me in? Love it. Well, we are at the hour mark. I could go all day with you, but I want to respect your time. Um, let's go with the last question I ask everyone. What was your first snare drum? Uh, Ludwig student model. It was probably an Acrolyte. So this would have been 91 or 92, uh, that kind of gray mist kind of sparkly finish, uh, probably had the olive badge, uh, with a black protective, like a school case that you would take to school for snare drum lessons. You can still find them. They're like 150 bucks on eBay. I wish I, I wish I still had it, but you know, the black galaxy you're talking about, it's almost looks like a black beauty but it's not yeah it's definitely not <laughs> <laughs> i literally have that drum in the studio behind this wall for a session that i'm working on <laughs> are you using it can yeah, you, you I, get it yeah it's got a tune low with a like a half of a handkerchief tape to it and it's exactly what this dude wants that's amazing yeah. <laughs> i mean also it's not the drum it's you you know what i mean like any it's partly the drum <laughs> yeah yeah I know, but like I just learned that from living in New York all those years and playing on crummy house kits and then Sean Pelton would sit down and all of a sudden yeah. the shitty house kit sounds like it cost five thousand dollars. Like, That's why? What what changed? <laughs> Gee, I wonder. <laughs> well, that is it, man. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. I learned how to play one headlight properly. We'll see what <laughs> happens next weekend when I have to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, very good, man. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, reaching out. I love it. I'm a, big, a fan fan of the pod. So keep them coming. That is it for this week's episode. If you like the show, please give us a review. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're getting this podcast. Make sure you're subscribed to our YouTube channel. Um, go check out some of Mark's work. You can follow him at Mark Steprow. And we'll see you next week.